0: Before we jump into this episode, I would love to hear your feedback on the podcast. Feel free to leave a comment in the podcast's Instagram, which can be found in the podcast description.
1: My parents died within nine months of each other. My dad died first, and then my mum. And I was with them both when they died. And my mum was a really important person in my life. Like we had a, a very beautiful relationship. And I found out probably seven or eight months ago that I am autistic. And that put that relationship into um, another perspective for me. But when they died, like I was lost. I was still in the public service. I was liking what I was meant to be doing, but wasn't like the environment I was doing it in. I ended up quitting the public service. And that just made me go, wow, I don't know what my identity is anymore.
0: Welcome to yet another episode of A Search for Manning. I'm your host, Oscar Scarman, and this is the podcast where we delve into captivating discussions on the topics of meaning, purpose, and vulnerability. In this episode, we have the absolute pleasure to be joined by Linda Forrest, an incredible individual who has dedicated her life to making this world a better place. Linda is probably the most interesting, kind-hearted, and genuine individuals I've ever had the privilege to meet. Her ability to engage in deep conversations is truly remarkable. Prior to this conversation, I hadn't crossed paths with Linda, but our discussion turned out to be one of the most enjoyable, deep, and heartfelt exchanges I've ever experienced. You're probably thinking that Linda would never swear. However, this is not the case, so there is a little language warning for this one. So, without further ado, welcome to episode number five of our search for meaning.
1: I'm Linda, 61, been around a long time and most of my life I think I've tried to do good things for other people. Started my life in the public service and now I work in not-for-profits. I was born in Scotland. My family came out to Australia when I was four and we were a Presbyterian family so we had a really big involvement with church and our church welcomed us to Australia. So I guess my early stuff about purpose was around the the church values which was about you know doing good works and supporting others, a really strong sense of community. There was It was really funny growing up in Elizabeth. It took a long time until I met someone who was born in Australia. I assumed everyone was born somewhere else because all of our um, friends and church people were Scottish or English. So it was really amusing to me when I finally met an Australian. Um, so the early stuff for me came from the church When I was 12, a brother of mine, my brother, I'm the youngest of five kids, and the brother who was next to me in age was murdered. And someone in the church said to us, oh, you know, it was God's will, blah, blah, blah. So that caused a great schism with the church for my family. And so my dad kept going to church because he played the organ. And I kind of think he kept doing that because he was a bit of a show off. And the rest of us left church. But we still had that really strong sense of community. And, you know, like the, it was a really weird time, very different to your time, really. Because, like, the bank manager was the person who knew everything about everyone and the local doctor and the chemist. So it was a really interesting time to, to have what, what became family was really our Scottish family. Um, but yeah, that, it was the church doing good work. My parents always, what their expectation of me was that I would be a good person and give back to community, hmm. um, and so I joined the public service. So the public service then was about serving the public and doing good work. So it, it sort of was the church then what happened to my brother. And then, yeah, my parents were really, they didn't have high expectations. I didn't do year 12. I haven't got a university degree, yet I became probably the top 10 or 15% of the paid people in the public service. So Mm -hmm. I just kept doing different jobs and different jobs, all in that area of service. Started off in a hospital, a women's information service, got jobs in premier and cabinet, spent 10 years working in Aboriginal affairs, Bit of time in child protection and education, so it was always in departments that were doing work for others.
0: Mm. Oh wow, what a story! So, how old were you when your brother passed?
1: I was twelve, and he was sixteen.
0: And that would have been a huge change.
1: Yeah, it was. It was an incredible. You know, like I look back now as a sixty-one-year-old woman. So it it did. Yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible for my parents, horrible for the other, you know, the four of us that were left. My two eldest siblings were both at uni. My middle brother, he was, you know, he was a ratbag. He spent some time in juvie and jail, probably up until he was in his fifties. And then there was David, who died. Yeah, it did impact because I became very small and quiet. I didn't want to cause my parents any grief, and I watched what it did to them. I mean, it amazes me that they stayed together because it was a horrible time of trauma. Mm. But in my mid. So I just thought there was this awful – my parents always told me what had happened. So basically David was killed for his car. Um, but in my 30s, I reckon, um, when I was working in government, I asked the DPP to look at his file, so to look at the court transcripts and everything, and I looked at it. And I always thought that these boys were – I just saw them as monsters, really. Mm-hmm. Um, when I read the file, I found out that two of them were kids in care Wards of the state, they were called then, and the other was just a friend of theirs. And David had just met them by chance, and they asked for a lift somewhere and they ended up in David being beaten to death. So, when I read that about them being wards of the state, my view of what happened shifted quite dramatically because I read about their lives and I read about how they were living then. And I felt that the state had failed those young boys, which in turn cost my brother his life and my family tremendous grief. So then I was pretty driven by wanting to change the system so it worked better for people. So that that had been my sort of driving force as a public servant to keep working to make sure that the public service and all those services were able to do kind of their best work to make sure that things didn't happen.
0: How long did it take after such an event like that to then see the files and develop that perspective? As
1: soon as I read it because I'd been in the public service for a while and I knew what goes on in those sorts of departments and I was in a department where child protection was part of that department, I sort of, as soon as I saw that they were wards of the state in that language of that time, I just thought, you fucking assholes, like you failed these kids. I looked at where they were living and the situation that we are in and I just knew that it was... You know, like if we had done better by their families, if we had done better by them once they came in care, this this needn't have happened. You know, like David was in the wrong place at the wrong time anyway. So that as soon as I read that, it, it then made me question and then I've been quite driven by that for a long time now. And so I, I, I guess when I see news reports or listen to news reports and they're having a go at these young kids, um, I still know that the system fails them. Um, we do work in it in that area, and we do our very best to make sure we don't fail them, and that they know that there are people around who care for them, who want them to be living, um, you know, lives where they can reach their fullest potential, lead full lives, whatever that means for them. But that there there are people that actually care for them and, and probably hold them with a bit of love for a period of time as well.
0: Mm. Have any type of sympathy f- for those kids? Like, it's incredible. Mm. How, how?
1: I think it's just in, I didn't at, at that age and I probably didn't at your age. Like as I mm-hmm. said, I just thought they were monsters. and but when you when you get beneath and you try to understand where people like what's happened to people in their lives, like where where they have been, how they've had to live, the things they haven't had, And it's through no circumstance of theirs. You know, they couldn't help it. It's it's a situation they're born into or it may be something that's happened to them in their lives that hasn't been, you know, worked through and been able to heal. So I think... Empathy is a really interesting thing. It interests me a couple of years ago or a few years ago when Scott Morrison and his corrupt government had to have empathy training. And I just, it shocked the shit out of me because I thought, who doesn't know what empathy is? So, but maybe it is a learned thing. But I think it's about not looking at things on face value and not having that that question in your mind of what's wrong with you when you see someone who's doing something that you can't relate to well or you think is totally wrong and think, What's happened? What's happened to you? What's happened in your life? Because then maybe some of that came from the early church stuff. I don't know because I I reject most of it now. But I think it is about thinking about what's come before for those people to reach this point in time in their lives and whatever that action is or that thing is that you're questioning or, or wanting to judge. I guess I try to understand it a bit more, which doesn't mean that I don't have road rage. Which, does, you know, like, you know, I can be pretty quick to judge at times too, but yeah. then I can sit back and try and go, well, what is this? And I don't, you know, I, I do feel like I was doing it from probably my early 20s on because of the sort of work that I went into. But yeah, it's it, it feels so much better to hold empathy than to hold anger and hate. Trust me. Like mm. when that shifted for me in my 30s and I came to have an understanding of those young men, um, you know, and they were 16 and 17, so they were kids. Um, it certainly made my life easier and not such a heavy load to carry emotionally.
0: Do you think if that hadn't happened to your brother, you would have gone down the same path and the same Mm. perspective?
1: That's a really good question, Oscar. I think because of my values base anyway, I would have. I may not have had the interest in the experiences of children and families with our care system. Although I didn't know at first. So I'd like to think that I would still have wanted to work in areas where it was about serving people and doing good work,
0: yeah. Mm. Do you think this gave you purpose? You seem like someone that has lots of men flawless in that category.
1: Look, lots of people who would know me would go, you know, Like I'm I'm full of everything, you know, I'm full of the anger, I'm full of fun, I like to think, I do think I'm funny. I'm full of emotion, you know, I can be judgmental, I mean, I try to not be, but I've also been around for 60 years and have had 60 years of experiences. I've had periods of my life where I have been so low. My parents died within nine months of each other, my dad died first and then my mum and I was with them both when they died. And my mum was a really important person in my life. Like, we had a, a very beautiful relationship. And I found out probably seven or eight months ago that I am autistic and that put that relationship into um, another perspective for me. But when they died, like, I was lost. I was still in the public service. I, you know, wasn't – I was I was liking what I was meant to be doing but wasn't like the environment I was doing it in. I ended up quitting the public service and that just made me go, wow, I don't know what my identity is anymore because I joined at 17, I quit in my early 50s. It was how I described myself. I took great pride in it. I then started drinking too much, drank way too much actually. I think I was a bit of a, I don't know why my partner stayed with me. Just, I mean, and I wasn't horrible to her except in accepting that I wasn't much of a nice person to be around. So, you know, like there's been lots of periods of my life where, I haven't necessarily been able to find that purpose, but I think it had been there. I got a job that I really liked for a period of five years and, you know, built myself back up into doing some really good work and good times. So it's, I think, everything in life, there's those ups and downs. And for me, it was about always remembering that core of why I'm here, and that is to be a good person <laughs> and to do good work and to help others.
0: Mm. That in itself is crazy i've lost a grandpa but i can't i can't imagine that how how does that even feel
1: to lose your parents yeah it was a really weird feeling about feeling then that you. a friend used the term an orphan and i mean they were both in the 80s so Mm. you know they were old and they'd had good lives and they were both hopefully good people from what i know they were both really good people but to lose that sense of yeah, the, the place where you could always go. You know, like I always knew I could go back to mum and dad's house and go to them for help. Like the number of times they bought me second-hand fridges when I first moved out of home and washing machines and shit like that. But it was that big emotional support. Like you just go, oh, my God, I'm on my own even though I've got my siblings. And I think the crunch moment was when the family household. Like that was, you know, this little place in Elizabeth East on Kincaid Road. It wasn't a McMansion, but it was like that haven was gone, mm. and so then you go. Oh shit! I am a grown up, you know. Like I was fifty, so I should have known that. But you go, okay. Just you have to get on with it. And in many ways, my my true family is my the people that are around me, my friends. I've got a couple of ex partners who are two of my very very best friends, and another couple who are, are really good friends of ours. So you just you have to get on with it, or you could choose to not but I just knew that they would want more and better for me than when I was being a whiskey-drinking pain in the
0: ass. (laughs) So how do you go about then finding some meaning or purpose? Like I feel like for at least a year, if not more, like it's just nothing.
1: It is, but you do have, like then I had a dog that I had to get up to walk every day. I had... A job to eventually get back to so you do it is it is that sorry to say that bullshit about one day at a time um, I remember driving back from the hospital when mum had died and just watching other people in the car and thinking you're just going around about your normal bloody day don't you know my mum's died and I just wanted to yell at everyone I was stopping at traffic lights and I was yelling in my car and I was playing oh god at is it Lucinda Williams It's a song called You're a Motherfucking Asshole and I was just singing that at the, like really singing it loudly and I'm sure everyone thought that I was just mad. So you go through those phases but you do know that eventually you have to get up and get on with it and I still want to, you know, my mum had this saying where she would say that I was her band, her wee band, then now and always and even though mum's not here, I'm still her band. I'm still her, her, you know, her youngest daughter and I know that she just wants me to keep going and keep doing good things. So it's not easy. I don't want it to be easy and it's never gone. That grief is still there. Oh, I've got my mum on. I wear some of my mum's ashes around my neck so she's close to my skin.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. Going on a different kind of route, you're a lot older than you look in a a nice way. (laughs) (laughs) How do you find your authentic self?
1: I mean, it, we all go through that thing where we will see an image or we'll be mesmerised by one of our friends or someone that we see and you think, oh, I want to be a bit like you, and you'll notice that you start talking like them or you'll pick up a mannerism of them. And, and you know, and I've done that. Like I had times where I thought I was, oh, you'd never know this guy, but David Essex was someone that I really liked music when I was a kid and I used to dress like him. You know, like it's so, you know, like I, you do that and you go through those stages. But I also remember acutely times where I'd go, oh, that is not you, Linda, what you just did or what you said or how you are. So I think it does take time to find who you are. But I don't believe that that core of me has ever changed that was in me, but my image most definitely has. Some of the people I've hung out with have. Some of the things I've said in work settings or around people, that's mostly where I'll come away and go, that is not me. Why have I just agreed with that, you know, that that tone of what people are saying or the line that they're taking on it. So you always go out in and out of it and and get annoyed. I used to get annoyed at myself, like that is not you. But that core, and I reckon if I spend a bit of time with you, I could work out what your core was. I mean, the fact that you're doing this, you're making yourself vulnerable by telling a bit of your story at first and you're looking for meaning. And I think we all do that in different ways. And, you know, some people it's through the church, some people it's through music, it's through what they read, It's some people do it through, you know, drinking drugs. So I just think we all do that. And to be honest, it probably wasn't until my late 40s or 50s where I've just gone, oh, okay. Like I didn't get dreadlocks until I was 50, but I've always wanted them because I didn't do it before because it didn't suit an image, you know, that people would have of an executive in the public service. So I've still done the conforming, but the core, I really want to believe that the core of me, I've, I've kind of protected or it's always been able to pull me back to saying, no, Linda, don't go down that route or apologise or mm. whatever that is. Um, so you're not going to know it at 18. Is it you 18? 17. Um, 17. um But you're building it. Like you, you are still a kid, and I know that sounds terrible, um, but don't have too high expectations about what some of that will be mm. yet because that's really unfair on you because you haven't had all of the sorts of life experiences that will come your way, the joyful ones and the really sad ones.
0: Yeah. You touched on vulnerability and, yeah, sort of going past the social constructs. How, how do you go about that? Because I find myself, and I get mad at myself as well, that really, I really resonated with that. And probably on a different scale, you've had a lot more life experience than me. How do you go about being more like you, even though you seem to automatically go into a different persona to please other people.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I probably still do a bit of that. Like the me that's around the office, say, when I'm working with your old man, although I don't work directly with him, but we work in the same space, they would probably all say that, you know, I'm good fun, that I have a good laugh, that I'm available, that I'm open, that I'll take on things, you know, and the way we may talk about things, like with my immediate colleagues, will be different to how I would express it when I go to an executive meeting because I've got to respect that environment. So, but even in that environment, I'm still me. I'm not saying yes to things that I wouldn't have said yes to before. I'm not enabling things that I don't want to enable. Yeah, so it's different, yeah.
0: Is there a time in your life where you felt, a really strong sense of meaning and do you think that was correlated with being more vulnerable
1: wow a question i can't think of instances but my automatic like what i automatically want to say is they i think it's impossible for it to not involve vulnerability because hmm. i think that's when you're most open it's when you're most honest with yourself and with others so i think like, I th- yeah, it's interesting because that's a really good question, Oscar. I would say that most of the time these days that I am willing to be vulnerable so that if you're asking me questions, I, I will give you an honest answer to it. And I think that the, the best way for me to support others, especially in work where I feel like what I'm doing is supporting managers and doing their work and, and other staff, I have to be honest and open about what I know and don't know so that they can, they will see that it's okay for them to be open and vulnerable and to talk to me about what is and isn't working for them so that I can support them to make that difference so they can do their best work for customers and clients.
0: Are there certain individuals or communities that have really helped you become more authentic?
1: Yeah, interesting. I did some work overseas and volunteering with the Red Cross in Southeast Asian countries. So I've done it in Laos, Vietnam, and then I also did it in the South Pacific. I remember going to some communities in Laos where people hadn't seen white people before, especially children, so scared of us and they were calling us ghosts and they were running away. And that was a time where I, like, you just had to sit and wait. We didn't speak the same language. I had a little bit of language but not very much. And we had interpreters. But that was a time of great patience. And then we came together, like it was with women mostly, that came and sat with me and they wanted to touch my – I've got a large straight nose, everyone. They wanted to (laughs) touch my nose because it was very different to theirs and things. Mm. And I think that that took a long time, like it was a a few days of just sitting and being and – Communicating not through language. And I think that was really profound for me because you're a very good interviewer actually because I think that's that thing about vulnerability and when you're with anyone, it's about just sitting and being human and letting that be what brings you together and that is always around vulnerabilities, isn't it, mm. now that you've said it. So, yeah, I think... And same with, I worked in Aboriginal affairs for a long time in government and I visited communities where they didn't want us there for very good reason because we were government and we were often in communities only when there was something going on. And again, that was about sitting and showing that we weren't going to go away and that we were there to, to support the community, to deal with some, some issues that were going on. And again, when you just sit there as a white woman in a, in a community of Aboriginal people or First Nations people, and they see that you're not going to go away no matter what's being thrown at you, then I think they have a stronger sense of, I wouldn't say trust, maybe it's, it's respect that you're there for the right reasons. And mm. again, that sitting, you have to be open and vulnerable because you can't just use your public sector speak. You can't be clever with your language. You can't try and charm. You just, you're there being human.
0: Mm. That's beautifully said. Thank you so much, Linda. What we like to do towards the end of the podcast is we have a question from the last guest who had no idea who the next guest was. Yeah. And we essentially, like, carry on the trail, I guess. So the last guest was Aya, and she's a monk. And her question was, when are you happiest?
1: When I'm at peace, really, and I try to make that as much of the time of the day that I can. So I try to not do things that I don't want to do. But probably like I love laughing. Like I'd love a good belly laugh. So I'd probably say that's probably when I'm more visibly at my happiest. But I the other day in the morning I was just about to go to work and I was standing at our back door and I was just, you know, breathing and I breathed out and I just saw you know how you see your breath when it's really cold? So good. And it was so beautiful. So I just stood there for probably another couple of minutes, just breathing. And I thought for the first time I actually have learned what mindfulness is because mm-hmm. I think I practice it. But, I, it, you know, and so I think or is it probably at my happiest when I see the little fish out here on the reef when I'm snorkeling. But that moment with my breath, I'd never felt so relaxed. And I just thought, oh, this is when you get mindfulness, right? This <laughs> is what it feels like. Yeah.
0: Right. That's awesome. And, yeah, without further ado, what is your question for the next?
1: What would you do if you came into incredible wealth? What would you do with the money?
0: I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you so much, Linda. It's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like I always have a connection with you from now on. I'm really happy about that. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Oscar. Nice kid.
0: Linda, I can't express how grateful I am for your presence in today's episode. Your authenticity, wisdom, and warmth have touched me deeply thank you for sharing your incredible life journey and insights into meaning, purpose and vulnerability your story is a testament to the power of empathy and compassion you've shown us that even in the face of adversity it's possible to find light and purpose thank you once again for gracing us with your presence your kindness and authenticity are truly remarkable and i'm honored to have had this conversation with you Before we wrap up, I want to give a massive shout out to each and every one of you. Your support means the world to me, and I'm truly thankful that you take the time out of your lives to listen to this podcast. Every episode of A Search for Meaning is a unique journey, so be sure to explore our previous conversations. Stay tuned for our next episode featuring Yulia Lacaempa, a remarkable entrepreneur who's transformed her life from feeling lost to pursuing her passion with incredible success. Until then, thank you for listening to A Search for Meaning.